if we want to have the high ground, we should never have done this in the first place. We should never do it again. If people are not going to be part of nation states, then we are going to have to have an asymmetrical response, and we now have to develop some new techniques that create apprehension to minimize effectiveness of the recruiting associated with it. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I practice law and I also write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. My co-host, Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. Before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is an online practice management system for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Well, last month, the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released a report damning, I think it's fair to say, the CIA's detention and interrogation program. Among its conclusions, the report finds that the CIA engaged in unlawful torture, cover-ups, unlawful detention, and unauthorized dissemination of classified information, and that all of this did nothing to help the CIA acquire intelligence or gain cooperation. Critics of the report have attacked its conclusions, saying that the study was biased, the study's process is flawed, and they maintain that the CIA's interrogations techniques uh, were effective and, and did in fact lead to intelligence that proved important to the CIA in thwarting terrorist activities. Today we're going to talk more about this report and uh, focus a little bit on some of the legal issues raised by the report. In order to help us do that, we have three guests uh, joining us today, all experts in this area. So let me introduce each of them in turn, and then we'll get into a discussion of the topic. Let me first introduce Mark P. Denbo. Uh, Mark is a professor of law at Seton Hall University School of Law. He is the director of the Seton Hall Law School Center for Policy and Research, where he has directed an internationally recognized series of studies on the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. Uh, he has uh, also represented uh, multiple Guantanamo de detainees himself, including Abu Zubadiah, and, uh, who, and uh, he can correct me because I've totally mangled that name, uh, long believed to be a high-ranking member of al-Qaeda and whose name appears in the Senate report more than a thousand times. Uh, so welcome to the show, Professor Denbo. Thank you. And uh, next in the program, let me welcome Horace Cooper. Uh, Mr. Cooper is co-chairman of the National Advisory Board for Project 21, the National Leadership Network of Black Conservatives, and an adjunct fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research. In addition to having taught constitutional law at George Mason University, Mr. Cooper was general counsel to U.S. House Majority Leader Dick Armey. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mr. Cooper. Good afternoon. 
And uh, last but not least, let me welcome to the program Mr. Patrick Eddington. Uh, Patrick is a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties at the Cato Institute, a former senior policy advisor to U.S. Representative Rush Holt from New Jersey. Patrick's legislative portfolio includes included security, intelligence, and detainee interrogation issues. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Patrick Eddington. Thank you, Bob. I, I want to just start by quickly doing a, a, a go-around among all three of you. Uh, you've, you've all, I'm sure, followed the CIA interrogation issue closely over the years. I'm wondering, when you first read this report, when it came out last month, what most surprised you about it? And, and Mark Denbo, let me start with you. Okay, what most surprised me about it was how accurate and detailed it was and how clearly what they expressed established facts that everybody has been dealing with for a very long time, and that is that they tortured many, many people to no avail, and in many cases, their form of torture that they used were really disgusting. It's interesting to have the United States Senate for the first time establish that the euphemism of enhanced interrogation techniques is, in fact, just torture. After all, we've known how to interrogate for years, and nobody needed to have enhanced interrogation techniques if you're the FBI solving crimes or anyone else. The enhanced interrogation techniques are just a euphemism for the 10 approved torture techniques that the CIA was using, as well as some of the additional ones they invented on their own. I was troubled a little bit more about the timing of the release. I was uh, troubled by the sourcing of the release, and I... uh, I have been following the conflict um, uh, that the uh, committee had been having um, with our intelligence agencies, and the motivation to uh, issue the report uh, seemed to coincide with the um, arrogance of the intelligence agencies and their interactions with the committee more so uh, than any uh, heretofore identified concerns. Uh, that the committee chairman, Diane Feinstein, has exhibited or expressed uh, with regard to the information that she had been having access to um, for her time uh, sitting on the committee and uh, in two different administrations. Can I respond to that just for one moment? I I think Uh, I heard you suggesting the process, this is Mark Dumbo, the process, the motivation, and the politicization of the report was troubling to you. But I didn't hear you ever say that the report was wrong or that it was appropriate to do what the report found they did, or whether, in fact, it was illegal, or even whether you thought it was torture? Well, um, this is Horace again. I would suggest that had those process concerns uh, been uh, appropriately presented, I could uh, evaluate better on the merit. Uh, One, when I can't uh, um, be confident that the source information is accurate, it becomes more difficult for me to then respond uh, on the merits of it. Um, As I would argue, um, if the uh, overreaction on the part of the intelligence agencies or whatever aggressive activities they took with regard to monitoring uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee's activities were um, addressed directly, perhaps there could have been a criminal investigation of that aspect of it. Perhaps there could have been some other type of accountability, and we could address this issue separately. But 
it appears that this was a response uh, to that interaction with the committee, the monitoring, and other unlawful or potentially unlawful accessing that motivated this more so than the merits of this. As I said, Ms. Feinstein has been uh, uh, on the committee and having ha- had access and briefings for some period of time uh, to wait until the end of her tenure on the committee to do this is a process concern that I think is warranting some concern. Well, let me. Uh, this is this yeah, is Pat. Let me yeah, uh, go ahead, jump Pat, in here real quick. I, I think it's very clear. Um, if you look at the chronology of events surrounding uh, the original votes to go forward with this investigation, and so on, uh, the reality is the only reason that this report took as long as it did to come out was because of stonewalling by the Central Intelligence Agency and, quite frankly, by the Obama administration uh, in refusing to actually, in an expeditious fashion process this executive report summary. And for the benefit of our, our listeners, I think it is important to remind folks that this is an executive summary. I, I've never read a 525-page executive summary before, but when you're dealing with a report that uh, is in excess of uh, 6,000, uh, as I understand it, almost 7,000 pages with something in the neighborhood of 38,000 footnotes, uh, it's very clear to me, having worked on the Hill for over 10 years and, and dealt with these issues, this is an incredibly thorough job. Uh, it's a damning job uh, with respect to exactly how deep the agency itself was involved in this. And, and you asked, Bob, at the top uh, of the program, you know, what, what did we as individuals kind of find most interesting about this? Uh, what I found most alarming about it was exactly how much of the idea for using these torture uh, techniques, and I'm completely with, uh, uh, with Professor Denbo on this, this was torture how much of the impetus for that came from within the Central Intelligence Agency itself. That, to me, is one of the most disturbing aspects of, of this entire episode. Well, you, uh, Patrick, I just wanted to follow up on that. You, you made a point uh, in a blog post you wrote at the Cato Institute after the, after the Senate report came out and CIA Director John Brennan uh, released a statement. Uh, I think you would call it defending uh, his agency's actions uh, in his statement. Uh, uh, and and uh, attributing uh, res- some responsibility to to a presidential uh, order, I, I guess, a directive. Uh, it, it, you wrote uh, that uh, it, instead of instead of learning the right episode lessons from this episode, that that uh, Brennan clearly left the door open to future CIA rendition and detention program, including the use of coercive interrogation techniques. Is that? in your opinion, always wrong? I mean, is, is, can you foresee any circumstance in which the CIA would be justified in using an enhanced interrogation technique such as what's described in this report? Well, let me kind of back the bus up a little bit further. Uh, I have said, and will repeat again, that the Central Intelligence Agency should never be involved in the rendition, uh, detention, and interrogation of any individual, period. That's, that's where this all went off the rails. You know, when President Bush signed the, the Covert Action Memorandum of Notification six days after uh, the 9-11 attacks, he instructed the agency to create this rendition and detention program. And instead of telling the president, um, sir, I'm sorry, but I think you confused with, with the director of the, of the Federal Bureau of Investigation – George Tenet, uh, the director of CIA, went ahead and, and smartly saluted and said, yes, sir, we're gonna, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get right to work on that. That is exactly where everything went off the rails right there. 
The agency should never have been involved in creating this kind of program, much less managing it, much less utilizing the kinds of torture techniques that were employed here. And I think that, you know, that's the other thing that concerns me going forward here. You, you referenced uh, D- Mr. Brennan's uh, press conference in which he admitted to, quote, some mistakes uh, in, in this uh, whole episode. But when he was asked specifically by a reporter, you know, would he recommend that this not be done again, he deferred that to a future administration. So that you know, that's clearly, you know, essentially leaving the door open to this kind of thing again. But uh, no, these tactics shouldn't be used. And, and I would just point everyone again to the absolutely magnificent speech that Senator McCain gave on the floor of the Senate the day that this report was made public. You know, he reminded all of us that this is not simply about them, meaning the terrorists, meaning those, the, the Islamic radicals that we're up against. It's about us. It's about who we are as a people. Uh, it's about our code, our values. Uh, and, and this is something that we should never do. And just to remind our listeners, in, in case you want to look this up uh, in fine law, uh, it's 18 U.S. Code 2340. Uh, this is what we're talking about here when we start talking about uh, torture actually being illegal under American law. Okay, so Horace, yeah, Horace, Horace, yeah, Horace. Uh, okay, go ahead, Horace. What I wanted to, to do is uh, offer a counterpoint. One is I think actually uh, the Central Intelligence Agency would be the highly suited entity to carry out this responsibility. Um, I don't believe it would have been in any way appropriate for the Federal Bureau of Investigation um, to oversee such a mechanism. And I am greatly concerned by the temptation by many to transform our intelligence and our uh, national security um, activity into primarily a criminal uh, course of uh, our function. Uh, I am not. Horace, can I ask you a question? Hard start. Yes, a second. I am not as concerned uh, about the role of the CIA as I am about the role of bringing our judicial and uh, criminal fact-finding functionality into the same role as espionage and national security. Yeah, I'm open to questions. Here's a question from Mark (laughs) Denbo. Okay, Horace, when was the first time the CIA ever interrogated a suspect? What year? Uh, Sometime in the 1950s. Nope. After 9-11. So when you talk about the CIA actually well, being the precursor of the CIA then, uh, a Defense Department uh, no. analog that was Let me precursor of the CIA, um, that is the now, origin Horace, of the... You and, I both know, you and I both know the CIA was started long before the, before the 1950s. So, Horace, my question remains, when did the CIA first interrogate a suspect I, I, I for would say, even if that point is accurate, even if that point is accurate... Well, assume it is. If you don't know, it's not true. Analog, I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing your statement. I said the Defense Department analog of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency was, in fact, handling interrogations uh, during World War II and continued to do so uh, even before, uh, even with the uh, existence of the Central Intelligence okay, Agency. The FBI should not be that entity. Yeah, let me just ask Horace. I, Horace, I hear you. I, I'm hearing your concern about the, the process here with this report. I, I, I wanted to ask you about the conclusion, somewhat the same question that I just asked Mr. Eddington, which is, are, do you, can you foresee a circumstance, uh, in, or do you believe currently that there are circumstances in which the CIA is justified in using enhanced interrogation techniques? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I support uh, uh, Professor Yu's interpretation of the existing uh, statutes that govern 
what constitutes torture, and uh, as uh, recent incidents in uh, France demonstrate, um, the vigilance that's necessary does in fact require activities that go beyond law enforcement and go beyond bringing people, quote, to justice uh, in a public or even a private trial. That is not necessarily the primary interest when you're talking about uh, a global effort uh, to challenge or contradict uh, the kinds of forces that uh, we face nationally. All right, we have already reached the midway point of this program. We have to take a, a brief break. Please stay with us, and we'll be back uh, in just a few moments to continue our discussion about the Senate report. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, uh, and with me today uh, is Professor Mark Denbo from Seton Hall University School of Law, Mr. Horace Cooper from Project 21, and Mr. Patrick Eddington from the Cato Institute. Professor Denbo, I wanted to ask you about the laws here. What legal issues are at play in uh, the, the CIA's use of uh, enhanced irrigation techniques? What authority do they have or not have, and what's the source of that? Okay, you mean Amer- on Americans in America or just Muslims anywhere in the world? Because I think that's the big question, right? Nobody would claim the CIA could do any of these things to Americans anywhere in the world or anybody in the United States. So we're now talking about what's the legality of what the CIA can do on other people from other countries and other times in order to make them talk. And the answer, it seems to me, is two things. One, I repeat, unfortunately, Horace doesn't know what it is the training and experience and role and function of the CIA has ever been up until 9-11, because it was never to interrogate, much less to torture. So the new development is quite a different thing. And I think we have to divide that subject Aside from the law, which I think it's clearly illegal, and I think that uh, John Yu should be ashamed of himself, but lawyers have a right to disagree, and I'm a lawyer. But let me try something different on this one. First of all, there's always two arguments. The third argument is always process, which means we're not talking about the two. The real argument is, is it effective? And even if it were to be effective, is it wrong? And it seems to me everybody has to agree that nobody would justify any coercive techniques, torture or otherwise, unless they were effective, whatever that means. So now I'm down to the point in which we have to say the only way anybody who is a proponent of torture could possibly argue their position is to say it is somehow effective. And the ironic part is there's absolutely no evidence anywhere in the CIA, in the Senate report, 
overwhelmingly establishes that they were totally ineffective. So I think we come down to the question, but let's assume that somebody wants to talk about effectiveness. Then the only question is, what are the limits? You know, would you have some bring somebody's child in and cut off their hand if they didn't say, I'll cut off the other hand if you don't talk? Would Americans permit that if it were effective? I just don't get the debate here. Clearly, these are assaults. They'd be crimes in the United States if they were done to Americans. And I don't understand how we get tied up in the process or legal or illegal. They're ineffective. They're obviously corrupt. And in fact, they are all of various forms of assault and battery. Of course, the, re- the Republicans' response takes issue with that conclusion that they were not effective. And, and the Repu- Republican response and, and others since then have, have gone through and, and, and cited examples of, of how they thought uh, these techniques were effective in eliciting uh, intelligence that, that was subsequently used by the CIA. Uh, but d- does that question of effectiveness, do the ends justify the means, I guess is the question. Yeah, I've got two points to make about that. I worked on Capitol Hill, too. I worked, uh, uh, in fact, uh, for the House Republican leader. And uh, during the 1990s when I was there, um, there were several disclosures made about uh, the nature of uh, CIA interrogation. In fact, there were discussions about what we were doing in Latin America in the 80s and in the 70s, and uh, there was a major discussion about whether or not the CIA was training some of our South American uh, partners in uh, interrogation techniques that constituted torture. So um, the idea that the Central Intelligence Agency would not have been first in mind uh, with regard to engaging in interrogation, I guess uh, I, we just have a, a difference of opinion about it. With regard to the it's idea, a fact question that can be resolved. It, it can be, uh, but with regard to the question of whether or not the techniques actually work or effective is to misunderstand the nature of the conflict. The real issue is what are the apprehensions on the part of the people that we're often encountering and dealing with in terms of their willingness to provide the kind of information that is necessary. We have, in in response to these complaints, uh, resorted largely to a drone effort that has been far more destructive in terms of life and limb and less likely to yield the kind of information that's necessary to protect people. But if the goal is simply blot out anybody that you suspect may in fact be a threat, that's what our drone effort ends up doing instead of having a far more narrowly tailored process, um, a much more precise basis of assessing individuals and determining what risk they or others they know pose. Well, Patrick, anything we haven't heard from you on this, uh, <laughs> does the end justify the means uh, question, I guess. Uh, where do you stand on this? Let me just uh, quickly address a couple of issues here. You know, I, I worked at the agency for over um, for almost a decade, um, so I, I know the system inside and out. And I know the agency's history pretty much inside and out. Interrogation has never been uh, a staple of what the CIA does, nor should it be. You know, President Truman, and I think this is what Professor Denbo was trying to allude to, President Truman created the Central Intelligence Agency to gather and disseminate information to himself, his successors, cabinet-level officials, and so on. And that is what the Central Intelligence Agency should be focused on. It should be focused on that exclusively. I happen to agree strongly uh, with what Professor Cooper's had to say with respect to the drone wars. I think they're insane. Where I disagree is this idea 
that the use of any of these torture techniques is ever going to, you know, get us to where we need to be. Um, they don't work, but I don't think that's, that's the ultimate issue here. The ultimate issue, again, is how do we comport ourselves? This is about, as Senator McCain said, this is about us. It's not about them. The, the other point that I would make here is that I think uh, it, what disturbs me so much about this debate is that no one talks about the fact that after the Oklahoma City bombings, we didn't pass the Patriot Act. We didn't authorize so-called enhanced interrogation <coughs> techniques. And those techniques were not used on those two young men who were um, white, Christian, former military members, uh, etc. We only talk about using these techniques on people who are brown and Muslim. And that's what offends me deeply. Um, we didn't use this on the Nazis. <laughs> We didn't use this on Japanese POWs, and my father served in the Pacific Theater in World War II and was, was responsible for guarding the few Japanese prisoners that, that we managed to actually collect up. We, we didn't do this in the Korean War, right? That's what bothers me about this, and that's what was so insidious about the decision to go down this road, is that we, you know, the, the Bush administration clearly did not want to treat these, these folks as POWs, so, so they wanted to keep it out of the law of war channel. But they weren't willing to do what we normally do with folks who commit acts of terrorism, which is put them through Article Three courts and try them, uh, as we're going to now try Zarnayev uh, for the Boston bombings. Uh, instead, they wanted to put these people in a gray zone so they could run a 24-style operation uh, and, and think that they could tune these people up, to, to use a colloquialism, and get anything useful out of them. Uh, it didn't work. It never works. It hasn't worked in the hundreds, if not thousands of years that folks have you know, tried to utilize torture. Uh, and, and we need to walk away from that, because when we start to militarize these things, we get things like torture. We get things like an out-of-control drone program. What do you, well, what do you say? I disagree more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, go ahead. Well, I couldn't disagree more. Um, first of all, uh, the history of the American encounter uh, in terms of our war effort uh, shows that there has been a big difference between people who grab a uniform, who represent a country, and whose aims and ambitions are directed towards us publicly. In this case, we have something entirely different. The law of espionage, which, by the way, precedes the existence of the Central Intelligence Agency, the NSA, um, and even the American government, has always allowed uh, the kinds of non-judicial detentions to take place, and in fact has led to uh, multiple so-called mini-trials that occur very quickly, very briefly, sometimes even just in uh, just being captured resulted in the hanging of people. After World War One and World War Two, there are still reported instances that are happening, whether it's the French government, whether it's the British government, even the American government, where people are being assassinated, where the executives of those governments are ordering the deaths of other people. So the idea that there wouldn't be some circumstance or situation where people who are not identified, who have not declared war, and are captured are in some way treated differently than we would treat someone who comes and blows up the um, Boston Marathon uh, racers or other people like what happened in Oklahoma City. There is no analogy in that. We've always treated this situation differently. May I turn and speak on this for a second? This is Mark Benbo. I don't understand. There's never any analogies to anything to any people's satisfaction unless they like the analogies. 
I must say, I feel like we're being deflected in a way that does a great injustice to the evils of the torture that we've taken, we've committed and admitted. And that is, I hate the drones, okay, I hate racism that it takes place, and I certainly hate all of the things that we've been talking about. But why can't we talk about the one thing that is historically significant? The United States Senate Intelligence Committee produced a report that overwhelmingly established torture, ineffective, horrific torture. And the only response I've heard are two things, to deflect and talk about drones or to talk about process. Why can't we talk about what the Senate Intelligence Committee found, even if, Boris, you decide to say you don't believe their findings are valid, let's assume for the sake of argument that the process was valid. What do you think of the substantive findings about what they concluded we had done and what results were from them. Well, Mark, Mark, let me just put that question back to you. Let's talk about that. What, given this report, given its conclusions, what, what should be happening? What should the response be? The first response has to be never again. The first response has to be in the history of America. We have never, through the euphemism of enhanced interrogation techniques or otherwise, adopted a policy of torture. We've never tortured people as a formal policy, and when we have, we've never defended those who did it. The fact that we're doing it to people of color is more disgusting, but the fact remains it's a horrific thing that we did. And right now, the first rule we have to establish is it didn't work. It was disgusting. It was done secretly and corruptly. It produced no benefit, and we have to refute it and stop it. My own view is that I do believe in accountability, and we should prosecute all people. I actually represented Timothy McVeigh briefly. I understand the idea of prosecuting people. But the fact of the matter is that we're talking about, it seems to me, anybody who is engaged in torture should be prosecuted. And the I, especially those people who took torture beyond the John Hughes 10, and especially those instances where people who have totally disappeared, all of those things take place. Do you realize the Senate report has documents in which the CIA said to the Defense Department, where the Defense Department said to the CIA, who people we should not give internal security numbers to before we hand them over to you. And those are the people they handed over because the reason they didn't want to hand those people over have internal security numbers is the Defense Department would have to tell the ICRC they had them and they would exist. So we know that the United States Defense Department working with the CIA, deliberately captured people, and knowing who they were, deliberately didn't give them names and handed them over to the CIA. And the Senate Intelligence Committee report is very clear. The CIA didn't even keep track of all the people who went in or all the people who went out. We don't know what happened. And And I I think somebody in this debate ought to talk about what the Senate Committee found rather than dismissing it because there's a question about process or deflecting it by talking about drones. Well, Horace Cooper, what about you? I mean, even if you question the process by which these findings were reached, do do they suggest the need for further criminal investigation and perhaps prosecution? Well, here's a phrase you won't hear from me saying very often, but I'll stand with Eric Holder on this. There isn't a basis for going forward with a prosecution. And in fact, when uh, the uh, UN Convention on Torture 
held one of their meetings last quarter, uh, the administration uh, adopted the bipartisan view uh, that the types of interrogation techniques that the CIA may be involved in if they're not happening inside the United States or on properties that the United States has governmental control over, they are not covered by that. And that has been a fairly um, straightforward understanding of this. Secondly, I don't agree, and I've said this in this conversation, I don't agree that the test of whether or not an inherent technique, uh, interrogation technique is useful is the information that it gives, even if that is a disputed point. The test for me is what apprehensions are caused potentially by those who are captured. And what we are seeing... Oh, Horace, did you mean... Horace, did you let, let, let him finish, and when, and I will finish very quickly. And when we have had these conversations about waterboarding, we are seeing reports that there is preparation and training that make that technique, one that many of our armed soldiers participate in, uh, armed forces members participate in, less effective. I'm interested in the fear effect. Mark, is that you was about to say something? Professor Dimbo? No, the problem no, is, you said, the word he put in was potentially. The oh. problem I have with everything Horace says is, it's potentially effective. I haven't heard, first of all, a specific technique he's identified as having been effective. Is there a single instance when waterboarding or walling or putting people in small boxes and crowding them or in stress positions, can anybody come forward and say, this technique worked? And here's how. The answer is everybody only says, generally speaking, it's potentially possible. It might have been effective. And I find that's just another deflection. Is that If you're going to claim it's effective, show it's effective. If you can't show it's effective, then we have to deal with the fact that it's just cruel and destructive of both our moral basis and, in fact, it's a crime. Patrick Eddington, what about you? What, what's the, what should be the response here? Yeah, let me, to, let me jump the, in there real quick. Yeah. I mean, as I recall... Uh, and, and Professor Denbo may, may have more of the history on this than I do. But as I recall, um, when the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese Army used uh, a lot of these kinds of techniques uh, on our folks or captured uh, uh, Allied right. soldiers, uh, unless I'm mistaken, unless I'm, I'm mis misremembering here, so to speak, uh, those folks were executed by the United States and the Allies for having engaged in the use of those tactics. And, 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 and I don't I, disagree with that. And I, and I think, again, I think, again, if we want to have, you know, a universal principle here uh, that we ought to be abiding by, I mean, these are, the, these are the things that we teach our children in Sunday school, right? Uh, you know, you don't engage in this kind of behavior. And that's what I also think is so uh, uh, insane about this entire public debate that we're having. I don't know why we're even having a debate. If we want to have the high ground, if we want to be the moral and legal exemplar for the world, we should never have done this in the first place. We should never do it again. I, I think it's just that simple. Well, I don't agree. And instance, the uh, recent instance of a news magazine that exercised freedom of the press to characterize the uh, Prophet Muhammad in a satirical fashion has led to their deaths. 
the rest of the people that we try to have a dialogue with, if they are prepared to declare war, go on a battlefield, and engage in the, uh, the protocols of war as, as the civilized world understands, I am perfectly fine with the approaches that you take. But you guys are denying the reality. There are thousands of people Thousands of people that the Russians, that the Americans, that the Chinese, that the British, that the French, that the Polish, any number of them captured people who they determined to be spies, took them, did not identify them, and summarily or shortly thereafter executed them, did not report it. It wasn't the subject of a U.N. investigation. It wasn't the subject of state-to-state disputes. That thing that you say isn't happening is happening all the time. And the reason that the White House in 2002 and this present White House continues to comprehend if people are not going to be part of nation-states and challenge us directly then we are going to have to have an asymmetrical response. And these types of techniques create apprehension, and we now have to develop some new techniques that create apprehension to minimize the effectiveness of the recruiting associated with it. So yeah, did it, we are just about out of time here, and I, I do want to give each of you a, a chance to just give us your, your final thoughts before we wrap up. Uh, so let me just go around uh, and get your final thoughts. And, and as you do that, I also uh, invite you to let our listeners know uh, how they can find out more about your work or follow up with you uh, if they'd like to do that. So uh, Professor Mark Denbo, uh, Seton Hall Law School, let's start with you and get your closing thoughts. Okay, so far what I've heard is that our policy seems to be it's okay to torture, not because we know it's effective or not, but because it scares people. That would, of course, be true of maiming, of, 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 of killing little children in order to make people talk. Anything would work because it's possible it would work. There's no limits. The second thing we've got here apparently is that it may or may not possibly have been useful in having some sort of impact. It seemed to me we've got to come down to a couple truths putting aside all the bogus stuff about process that Horace keeps mentioning or drones or anything else that deflects it. The question is this, do we first of all believe that, is there any evidence that the torture techniques have been effective? And I want to start with this. There's 10 of them. Do we know which of them is more effective or less effective? Has anybody studied those? The answer is no. And the second question is, can anybody even identify any or all of the techniques that actually produced information if so, when and how? Why can't they? Because they haven't been effective. I'd like to think that all Americans believe whatever you thought about torture, if you believe that torture was ineffective, no Americans would support it because it's nothing but cruelty to, uh, to human beings, and it is an assault, and it is a crime. And crimes done on human beings, Americans or elsewhere around the world, are crimes, whether or not we deal with the definition of John Yu and torture. So I think it's about time we talk about the Senate report as a true statement. Even if you don't like it, assume it's true and say, here's what our Senate has determined happened. Do we, if it's true, approve or disapprove it? Just saying I don't believe it is not a response to the debate, and it's disrespectful to any intellectual exchange that could ever take place. Uh, thank Horace, you very much. you agree with me? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think Horace will tell us. Uh, Horace, let's, uh, let's hear from you. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm very glad that we're having uh, this type of conversation, and I um, uh, aim to make sure that we don't stay in the cramped, artificially created confines of whether or not a particular interrogation technique worked on this particular day as to determine whether what the legal status of the actions of a nation-state with regard to asymmetric threats exist. I continue to make sure people understand that there is a... Uh, a history, a lengthy history that continues even to 2015 of nation states uh, separately capturing individuals that they have determined to be threats that they do not report, that they do not bring to court, and that some of those people disappear. That is not what we're doing at Guantanamo Bay, but to the degree that what is happening at Guantanamo Bay allows people to be directly identified, to be matched with the activities that they are engaging in and the threat risk that they propose, that they pose, we are actually going above and beyond what is uh, the norm in a lot of these kinds of contexts involving asymmetric conflict. It is critical that we not bring into the federal or the state criminal justice system the uh, national security uh, response that nation states engage in. Uh, we as Americans and even the people who come to our country ought to feel that if there are threats, a criminal nature of, about them or involving them, that those are going to be treated in the traditional way that our criminal justice system is capable of doing. These other individuals, many of them, are not appropriate for that particular setting, and we'll have an instance similar to what happened when Eric Holder spoke a couple years ago about bringing a trial to New York City. I know they'll be found guilty. The whole purpose of a trial is to have an open process where we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, our organization is very interested in these issues, and if any of your listeners are following, uh, please check us out at www.nationalcenter.org. Thank you very much. And, and Patrick Eddington of the Cato Institute, you get the uh, enviable position of having the final word uh, here today. Well, I don't know that... Uh, let me begin by thanking uh, you, Bob, and, and your crew for having us on today. It, it's certainly been a very stimulating discussion. For those of you who might be interested in following up with me, you can find me online at www.cato.org. Just click on uh, our experts, the tab there, and uh, you'll find me there. And it's got my page with some of my most recent publications. Now, enough with the commercial. Uh, let me get back to the substance here. You know, whether you talk about the Puerto Rican separatists in the United States in the 1950s or the Bottom Meinhof gang and the Red Brigades in Germany and Italy in the 1970s, all of those I would describe essentially as non-state actors, to, to use uh, Professor Cooper's uh, framing. We didn't waterboard them. We didn't torture them. We put them through a criminal justice process, which is exactly how these kinds of things should be handled. And with respect to the detention program uh, that we've been talking about to include what's still ongoing at Guantanamo Bay, we know that a large number of individuals who are rounded up uh, in this particular period had no connection to terrorism whatsoever. And they've been allowed to languish in Guantanamo for years despite that fact. That's going to be yet another black stain on the United States, and it's just another reason why, another, another form of dishonor, essentially, for the United States. And it's just another reason why we need to repudiate these practices. 
We need to absolve ourselves. We need to come clean on everything that we have done so far. And we need to renounce ever using these kinds of tactics uh, ever again. And we need to demilitarize our entire response uh, to this problem. Because quite frankly, treating it as a military threat elevates it to a level that simply creates a, a, rec a recruiting mechanism for the people that we're up against. Uh, so I think that's where I'll leave it for now. Thank you all. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I think, uh, uh, Professor Denbo, we, di we didn't get your contact information, but you can go to, our listeners can go to the uh, Seton Hall Law School website, uh, law.shu.edu, and find your uh, complete biography and contact information there. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for uh, this really fascinating discussion and for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, thanks again to our listeners for uh, tuning in to our podcast. That brings us to the end of Today's show, this is Bob Ambrogi. We appreciate your listening. Uh, please be sure to join us next time for another great topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.